Maria Lassenaris, ladies and gentlemen. Today I thought of making a bit of a change in my podcast content, so I decided to bring to you a very famous story from Gede Mopasso. Gede Mopasso happens to be an all-time great in the realm of short stories across the world, across the time. So to have a change, to make a change, I decided to bring his story to you, the father. Ivala Clark, in the Borough of Public Education, Alwalton, Batik Knowles, he took the omnibus to Paris every morning and always sat opposite a girl with whom he fell in love. She was employed in a shop and went on at the same time every day. She was a little brunette, one of those girls whose eyes were so dark that they looked like black spots on a complexion like ivory. He always saw her coming at the corner of the same street, and she generally had to run to catch the heavy vehicle and sprang upon the steps before the horses had quite stopped. Then she got inside, out of breath, sitting down, looked round her. The first time that he saw her, frankly tastes your like the face. One sometimes meets a woman whom one longs to clasp in one's arms without even knowing her. To girl seems to respond to some cause in his being, to that sort of ideal of love which one cherishes in the depths of the heart without knowing it. He looked at her intently, not meaning to be rude, and she became embarrassed and blushed. He noticed it and tried to turn away his eyes, but involuntarily fixed upon them her again every moment. Although he tried to took in other direction and in few days, they seemed to know each other without having spoken. He gave up his place to her when the omnibus was full and got outside, though he was very sorry to do it. By this time she got so far as to greet him with a little smile, and although she always dropped her eyes under his looks, she felt were too ardent, yet she did not appear offended at being looked at in such a manner. They ended by speaking. The kind of rapid friendship had become established between them. Daily free masonry of half an hour. And that was only one of the most charming half hours in his life to him. He thought of her all the rest of the day, saw her remains continually during the long of his hours. He was haunted and bewitched by the flowing yet tenacious recollection which the form of a beloved woman lives in us, and it seemed to him that if he could win the little person it would be a maddening happiness to him almost above human realization. Every morning she now shook hands with him, 
and it brings all the sense of the touch and the recollection of the gentle pressure of her little fingers until the next day, and he almost fancied that it preserved the imprint on his palm. He anxiously waited for a short omnibus ride, while Sunday seemed to him heartbreaking days. However, there is no doubt that she loved him. For one Saturday in spring, she promised to go and lunch with him at Mason's Lafayette the next day. She walked to the railway station first. We surprised him, but she said, "Before going, I want to speak to you." We have twenty minutes, and that is more than I shall take for what I have to say. She trembled as she hung on his arm and looked down. Her cheeks pale as she continued, "I do not want you to be deceived in me. I shall not go there with you unless you promise, unless you swear not to do not to do anything that is all improper." She had suddenly became as red as a poppy, and said no more. She did not know what to reply, for he was happy and disappointed at the same time. He should love her less certainly if he knew that her conduct was light, but then it would be so charming, so delicious, to have a little flirtation. As I did not say anything. She began to speak again in an agitated voice, with tears in her eyes. If you do not promise to respect me altogether, I shall return home. So he quizzed her arm tenderly and replied, "I promise. You shall only do what you like." She appeared relieved in mind and asked with a smile, "Do you really mean it?" And I looked into her eyes and replied, "I swear." Now you may take the tickets," she said. During the journey, they could hardly speak, and the carriage was full. And when they reached the Masons, laughed. They went toward the sand. The sun, which shone full on the river, on the leaves and the grass, seemed to be reflected in their hearts, and they went on. Hand in hand along the bank, looking at the shoals of fish swimming near the bank, and they walked on, brimming over with happiness, as if they were walking on the air. At last, he said, "How foolish you must think me!" Why? he asked. To come out like this all alone with you? Certainly not. It's quite natural. No, no, it's not natural for me because I do not wish to commit a fault. Yet, this is how girls fall. But if you only knew how wretched it is every day, the same things every day in the month, and every month in the year, I live quite alone with Mama, and she has had a great deal of trouble. She is not very cheerful. I do the best I can, try to love in spite of everything, but I do not always succeed. But all the same, it was wrong in me to come. Though you, at any rate, were not sorry. 
By way of an answer, he kissed her ardently on the ear that was nearest him. But she moved from him with an abrupt movement and getting suddenly angry, exclaimed, Oh, Monsieur Franquet, after what you swore to me, and they went back to Mason's Lafayette. They had lunch at Petit Haver, the low house buried under four enormous poplar trees by the south of the river. The air, the heat, the weak white wine, and the sensation of being so close together made them silent. Their faces were flushed and they had a feeling of oppression. But after the coffee, they regained their high spirits and having crossed the seam, started off along the bank toward the village of Lafred. Suddenly he asked, What is your name? Louis. Louis, he repeated, and said nothing more. The girl picked the daisies and made them into great bunch, while it sang vigorously as unrestrained as a cold that has been turned into a meadow. On the left vine-covered slope followed the river. Franquist stopped motionless with astonishment. Oh, look there, he said. The vines had come to an end and the whole slope was covered with lilac bushes on the flower. It was a purple wood, a kind of great carpet of flowers, stretched of the earth, reaching as far as the village, more than two miles off. She also stood surprised and delighted, and murmured, Oh, how pretty! And crossing a meadow, they ran toward the curious low hole, which every year furnishes all the lilac that is drawn through Paris on the cards of the flower vendors. There was a narrow path beneath the trees, so they took it, and when they came to a small clearing set down, swarms of flowers were bustling around them and making a continuous gentle sound, and the sun, the bright sun of a perfectly still day, shone over the bright slopes, and from that forest of blossoms a powerful fragrance was borne toward them, a breath of perfume, the breath of flowers. The church clock struck in the distance and embraced it gently, then without knowledge of anything but that kiss lay down on the grass. But she soon came to herself with a feeling of a great misfortune and began to cry and sob with grief with her face buried in his hands. He tried to console her, but she wanted to start to return and go home immediately, and she kept saying as she walked along quickly, Good heavens, good heavens. He said to her, Louis, Louis, please, let us stop here. But now her cheeks were red and her eyes hollow, and as soon as they got to the railway station in Paris, she left him without saying goodbye. When he met her in the omnibus the next day, she appeared to him to be a change and thinner, and she said to him, I want to speak to you. You will get down at the boulevard. As soon as they were on the pavement, she said, We must meet each other goodbye. I cannot meet you again. But why, he asked. Because I cannot. I have been culpable. I'll not be so again. Then he implored her, George would by his love, 
but she smiles but blood family now. I cannot, I cannot. He however grew only more excited and promised to marry her. But she said again, no, I loved him. For a week he did not see her. He could not manage to meet her, and as he did not know her address, he thought that he had lost her altogether. <clears throat> on the ninth day, however, there was a ring on the bell, and he opened the door. She was there. She threw herself into her arms and did not resist any longer, for there, <clears throat> for three months, they were close friends. He was beginning to grow tired of her when she whispered something to him. <clears throat> And then he had one idea and wish to break with her at any price. As however, he could not do that, not knowing how to begin or what to say. <clears throat> Full of anxiety, through fear of consequences of his rash indiscretion, he took a decisive step one night, he changed his lodgings and disappeared. The blow was so heavy that she did not look for the man. Had abandoned her, but he threw herself on her mother's knees and confessed her misfortune. Some months after, he gave birth to a boy. Years passed, and Frank Terzer grew old without having ever been any alteration in his life. He led the dull, monotonous life of an office clerk. Without hope, without expectation, every day he got up at the same time, went through the same streets, went through the same door, passed the same porter, went into the same office, sat in the same chair, and did the same work. He was alone in the world, alone during the day, in a mist office, different colleagues, alone at night in his bachelor's lodgings. He only laid by a hundred francs a month against old age. Every Sunday, he went to the Champs Elysee to watch the alien people, the carriages, the pretty woman. The next day, he used to say to one of his colleagues, "The return of the carriages from the Bois du Boulogne was very brilliant yesterday." On one fine Sunday morning, however, he went into Park Monaco where. The mothers and nurses, sitting on the sides of the walks, watched children playing, and suddenly Frank Quetesier started. A woman passed by, holding two children by the hand: a little boy of about ten, and a little girl of four. It was she. He walked another hundred years, and then fell into a chair, choking with emotion. She had not recognized him. So he came back, wishing to see her again. She was sitting down now, and the boy was standing by her side, very quietly, while the little girl was making sand castles. It was she. It was certainly she, but she had the reserved appearance of a lady, was dressed simply, <coughs> and looked self-possessed and dignified. He looked at her from a distance, for he did not venture <coughs> to go near. But the little boy raised his head, and Frank Quatesier felt himself tremble. It was his own son. There could be no doubt of that. 
and as he looked at him, he thought he could recognize himself as he appeared in an old photograph taken years ago. He remained hidden behind a tree. Waiting for her to go that he might follow her. He did not sleep that night. The idea of a child especially tormented him, his son. Oh, if he could only have known. I've been sure. But what could he have done, however? He went to the house where she lived and asked about her. He was told that a neighbor, an honorable man of strict morals, had been touched by her distress and had married her. You know the fault she had committed and had married her and had even recognized the child, his Franquitatius child, as own. He returned to Park Monsieur every Sunday and then he always saw her each time he was seized with a mad and irresistible longing to take his son into his arms and cover him with kisses and to steal him to carry him off. He suffered horribly in his wretched isolation as an old bachelor, with nobody to care for him, and he also suffered atrocious mental torture returned by paternal tenderness springing from remorse, longing and jealousy from that need of loving one's own children, which mature has implanted in him. At last he determined to make a despairing attempt, going up to her, as she entered the park, he said, standing in the middle of the path, pale with trembling gloves, you'd not recognize me. She raised her eyes and looked at him, uttered an exclamation of horror, of terror. And taking the two children by the left hand, she rushed away, dragging after them, while he went home and wept inconsolably. Months passed without his seeing her again, but he suffered day and night he was a prey to his paternal love. He would gladly have died if he could, only have kissed his son. He would have committed murder, performed any task, braved any danger, ventured anything. He wrote to her, but she did not reply, and after writing her some twenty letters, he saw that there was no hope of altering her determination and then he formed the desperate resolution of writing to her husband. Being quite prepared to receive a bullet from a revolver, if needed be, the letter consisted of few lines as follows. Monsieur, you must have a perfect horror of my name, but I am so wretched, so overcame by misery, that my only hope is in you, and therefore I venture to request you to grant me an interview of only five minutes, I have the honor, etc. The next day he received the reply, Monsieur, I shall expect you tomorrow, Tuesday, at five o'clock. As he went up the staircase, Franquay Tessier's heart beat so violently that he had to stop several times. There was a tall and violent thumping noise in his breast, as of some animal galloping, and he could not breathe only with difficulty, and had to hold onto the banisters in order not to fall. He rang the bell on the third floor, and the maid servant had opened the door, and he asked, Does Monsieur 
flammable will be yes, monsieur, can I come in? He was shown into the drawing room. He was alone, waited, feeling bewildered as in the midst of a catastrophe until the door opened and a man came in. He was a tall, serious, and rather stout or a black frock coat on a pointed to a chair in his hand. Frank Vitasio sat down and said with a choking breath, Monsieur, Monsieur, I do not know whether you know my name, whether, you know, Monsieur Flamel interrupted. You need not tell it to me, Monsieur, I know. My wife has spoken to me about you. He spoke in the dignified tone of a voice of a good man who wishes to be severe and with the commonplace stateliness of an honorable man, and Frank Vitasio continued. Well, Monsieur, I want to say this. I am dying of grief, of remorse, of shame, and I'd like once, only once, to kiss the child. Monsieur Flamel got up, rang the bell, and when the servant came in, he said, Will you bring Loy here? When she had gone out, they remained face to face without speaking, as they had nothing more to say to one another, and waited. Then he suddenly, a little boy of ten, rushed into the room and ran up to the man whom he believed to be his father, but he stopped when he saw the stranger, and Monsieur Flamel kissed him and said, Now go and kiss the gentleman, my dear. And the child went up to the stranger, looked at him, Francois had risen. His hat, he let his hat fall, and was ready to fall himself as he looked at his son, while Monsieur Flamel had turned away from a feeling of delicacy and was looking out of the window. The child waited in surprise, but he picked up the hat and gave it to the stranger. Then Frankway, taking the child in his arms, began to kiss him wildly all over his face, on his eyes, his cheeks, his mouth, his hair. And the youngster, frightened at the shower of kisses, tried to avoid him, turned away his head and pushed away the man's face with his little hands. But suddenly Frankway this year put him down and cried, Goodbye, goodbye. And he rushed out of the room as if he had been a thief. Ladies and gentlemen, at the beginning of the story, I'll tell you that I'm going to cover only few parts. Because the story is divided into five parts. But I was so much engrossed in it, I decided that I'll finish the story here itself. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Take care of yourselves.